Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. Bonjour everyone, this is Melody and we're back with French-Canadian News. We'll start with an article from Juliana LaRue titled Franco-American Collection welcomes USM President Jacqueline Edmondson. On July 1st, Dr. Jacqueline Jackie Edmondson, an experienced Pennsylvania academic administrator and author, became the University of Southern Maine's president. She says, I am looking forward to learning about Maine's Franco-Americans. Check out the article to learn more about Dr. Edmondson. Next up, we have another article from LaRue titled, Lafayette Trailmarker in Biddeford. On August 18th, the Biddeford Cultural and Heritage Center hosted an unveiling of Biddeford's only marker on the Lafayette Trail. This trail spans 25 states, including Washington, D.C., and highlights various destinations that Marquis de Lafayette toured during a visit to America between 1824 and 1825. Check out the article for more about this historical marker. There's a new post on the FAC blog titled Pumpkin Racing, which talks about the tradition of racing and carved-out pumpkins on the Biancourt River in Quebec. Lastly, we have two new posts on Queer the Past by Patrick Lacroix. Check out A Complete 180, Webster, Ashburn, and Hindsight, and Those Other Franco-Americans, New Biddeford, Part 2. And now, on to events. On August 19th, from 6pm to 8pm, check out the Franco-American Center's Summer Celebration, Fête d'été, at The Brook in Seabrook, New Hampshire. Reservations include appetizers, music, and fun. Cash bar is available. Reserved by 5pm on Thursday, August 18th. Tickets for reserving early are $20, and tickets at the door are $25. The first 50 advanced registrants get a complimentary beverage, so register as soon as you can. On August 23rd, from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., join the Franco-American Center in Nashua, New Hampshire, for Le Clic-Clic Courterie at Barnes & Noble. Join in for light and fun conversation in French. That's all I've got for you this time. Everything I've covered today will be linked in the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast episode description. Merci for listening. On June 2, 2022, Gabrielle Russell and Rhea Cote-Robbins unveiled a plaque commemorating Camille Lessard-Bissonnet on Lisbon Street in Lewiston, the site of the former editorial offices of Le Messager. The plaque is part of the National Votes for Women Trail and recognizes Lessard's public commitment to female suffrage more than a decade before the national ratification of the 19th Amendment. The best glimpse of Lessard's fascinating life story comes to us from Janet Scheidler, a professor at Siena College who wrote her dissertation on this main suffragist. Scheidler's work was then published in book form as Camille Lassant-Bissonnet, The Quiet Evolution of French-Canadian Immigrants in New England, which appeared in 1998. It will probably come as no surprise that biographies of Franco-American women are few and far between. Scheidler helps to fill this void, draws her attention to questions of gender in the Franco-American community, and explores the Franco-American world that Lassard entered as a young immigrant woman and then quickly left in the 1910s. Lassard was born in 1883 in the Centre du Québec region of the province of Quebec. She moved to Lewiston with her parents and siblings in 1904. She would only spend eight years in that city, but she wasted little time in living out her aspirations. By 1906, she was contributing to Le Messager. She established the newspaper's women's page and used that platform to express strong views about female autonomy however unorthodox they were for the time. After 1912, her life was one of near-constant moves. We find her in Edmonton, Alberta, 
Winnipeg, Montreal, Los Angeles, where three of her brothers lived, St. Louis, Louisville, Kentucky, with several more back and forth between California and Montreal, all that time living independently from clerical work. Only in 1943 did she add Bissonnet to her name. Her new husband, Napoleon Bissonnet, was a committed labor unionist and a former member of the Connecticut legislature. After offering an outline of Lassalle's life, Scheidler dives into the themes of her work, her columns in Le Messager, and the book that remains her claim to fame, Canuck. The author places Lassalle in a rapidly evolving ethnic community. Lassalle was herself, in some respects, a revolutionary figure who dared to challenge the sacred cows of French-Canadian culture. Scheidler writes, quote, that Lassalle Bissonnette violated all literary and ideological laws by her treasonous demystification of Quebec society. In the United States, Franco-Americans were intent on proving their continued loyalty to the Mère Patrie. Thus, they were often even more reluctant than their counterparts in Quebec to criticize the very reactionary ideologies and socio-economic policies that had driven them from the province. End quote. Scheidler refers to a stridency that revealed an embrace not of French-Canadianness, but of Franco-Americanness. For its part, Canuck, written more than 20 years after Lessard left Lewiston, occupies much of Scheidler's analysis, which provides historical context and probes Lessard's view of Franco-America. While Canuck is fairly well known in the Franco-American world, Lessard's views and life journey are not, which again highlights the pioneering nature of this book. Professor Scheidler's work is available for checkout from many academic libraries throughout New England, New York State, and Quebec, or it can be ordered through interlibrary loan. Pick it up and learn about a true trailblazer. Bonne lecture. Now, this week's guest is a gentleman I had the privilege of meeting at New York City. So after the event we had at the Organisation Internationale de Francophonie, their offices, at the United Nations down in New York City for the book that was French all around us, the very cool book project I was very happy to be involved with. We had, an op after that event, which was really neat, we got together and we watched a segment of a film. Now, this is a film was about the legends of the French, Franco-Americans who settled in the region in, of the Mississippi River, the Illinois region, in Missouri. And so we got kind of a taste of a little bit of what their folklore was. And it was really cool. It was set to this amazing artwork. And we got a snippet of that. And that was just part of a much larger documentary telling the story of the Franco-Americans of the Illinois Valley. So super, super neat, really interesting gentleman. And that's who we get to talk to today. His name is Brian Hawkins, who's the filmmaker behind that incredible film. Um, and I'm really excited to introduce it to you guys and show you guys some of the clips from it as well. We'll be sure to highlight. So coming up in the next interview, the super talented filmmaker, Brian Hawk. Do you have any fun kind of crazy festival stories by any chance? The festivals, I would say, are the picnic can be pretty, uh, pretty fun. Like there are a lot of there's a lot more of a sort of rambunctious atmosphere at the picnic, bizarrely. Uh, than at the Fête de l'Automne. Okay, what's this picnic about? Um, I gotta know. It's just a parish picnic, but people are drinking right after Mass and, you know, spend all afternoon. And there's there's like a tug of war and things like that. It's really fun. The Fête de l'Automne is more sort of music and food focused. There's dancing and things like that. 
but no, they're not. They're not. Inter- they're not real wild. I wouldn't say the the La Guione in Saint Genevieve is a pretty wild time. That was a. That was a. <laughs> I think if people want to have a wild experience, that's probably where you would want to go. I, yeah, I wish I had. I wish I had some really uh, exciting festival stories for you, but but I don't, unfortunately. And also, <laughs> like fine. I've been filming a lot, you know, so it it kind of takes you out of the sure the experience. Um, but yeah, it's funny because like when you, when I was watching the, the, the footage you had of La Guione and talking to, I still, you know, through the podcast, like, as you'd mentioned through your project, you meet all kinds of different people. So through the podcast of, you know, I have some friends up in Quebec now and they still do, they still have their very huge family traditions on New Year's Eve. I think to, to have the opportunity to go to one of those and to see, and like my parents did, like when I was growing up, my mom still talks about them, you know? All the after midnight mass, all the furniture gets pushed to the side. Somebody pulls out a fiddle. Somebody pulls out a guitar. A lot of drinking going on. A lot of kids go amuse yourselves in the kitchen because we're about to have a party out here type thing. And so to be able to to like see that, it would be it would be incredible. So I, I would love the opportunity to go. To be honest, I'm very jealous you got to be there. I hope to see you there next time. Um, I'm planning on going back this <laughs> December just because I it's been a few years, you know, and yeah, it's just, it's just a really important part, I think, of the of the local culture. One st- sort of wild story, I guess, that I can tell you is not something I experienced personally, but this was a huge tradition in old mines and probably in a more in a broader sort of context. There, whenever the people would get together in the evenings after work or on a weekend or whatever in the winter, usually they would call that a, a bouillon. And a bouillon was okay. the name for what they would were eating, which is just a chicken broth. Um, but it was also sure. the word that they used for the party. It was very important. Several people have stressed to me the importance of stealing the chicken for the bouillon. And so you would um, <laughs> there was a there was a lot of there was a lot of this going around. So people would come and they would take one of your chickens, and the only rule was that you had to invite whoever you know, you had stolen from to, to the bouillon. And then there was usually a way that over the course of the evening, everyone would kind of try to figure out whose chicken it was, you know? And, uh, (laughs) and then, you know, there would be, there would be acts of revenge, right? So then someone would have to, you would, you would then be kind of setting yourself up to be the victim of a, of the next chicken theft. Um, but that too kind of, you know, sets up this relationship of give and take and, you know, and it's lighthearted, you know, but you can see where people were having a good time with not, with really no money, you know, and, um, and yeah, for sure. No, that's awesome. I'll tell you if Mike ever steals my chicken, there's going to be hell to pay for sure. There's going to be major consequences. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FCL Podcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.